Greetings, Pastor Andrew in City Life Church, Melbourne. Great welcome from New Zealand. And uh, I'm so sorry I can't be with you physically and personally. I really love to connect with the team and love to have the time of interaction and also opportunity to lay hands and pray for people. But we're going to do it from here. And uh, there's always a way to overcome, isn't there? So uh, today I want to speak to you a message called The Purpose of Prayer. The Purpose of Prayer. And uh, we're going to outline uh, in this message three major purposes of prayer. And really helpful if you can understand those purposes because it'll give you some focus to your prayer life. Anyway, why don't we just start in uh, Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10. And uh, I want to show you something in the story here. And then we're going to pick up some principles. We're going to read Acts chapter 10. Now let me just ask you this. If you were God... And uh, you were figuring, I want to pour out my spirit for the first time in history, not on the Jewish people, but I want to find some Gentiles. And for the first time in history, I'm going to pour out a wave of revival, a wave of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to bring uh, to, uh, into the earth something that's always been in my heart. Where would you start? Or better still, what person would you look for? Because whenever God wants to do something, he always looks for a person. And so we read here in Acts chapter 10, God found a person. Now this is, this is God's choosing. He didn't choose this himself, but he positioned his life so he could have an encounter with God and so he could be part or the doorway through which a great wave of God into the earth. And that wave has been a blessing even to this day to you. So let's have read it in Acts chapter 10. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian Regiment. So this is a Roman centurion. Now the Romans were very, uh, they were very militant. They advanced and they conquered everywhere they went. And uh, their men were highly trained and they were used to fighting hand-to-hand combat and battles. And here's a man who's a Roman centurion called Cornelius. But notice what it tells us also about him. It says, he was a devout man who feared God. So there's a respect and a reverence and an honor for God in his heart. And it says he gave, uh, with all his household, gave alms generously to the people. And he prayed to God always. And notice now, he's a man who fears God. He's got a deep respect for the living God. Uh, clearly, it affects his whole household. Secondly, we see he gave alms generously. In other words, he had the heart of God, which is to show mercy to the poor. So what's operating in his life is a deep gift of mercy. And isn't it interesting how Jesus taught, to the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. And this man was a generous giver. And it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. So he has a very clear angelic visitation. It is visible to him. And it's, uh, I can imagine just the impact it must have had on him. So unexpected, suddenly an angelic visitation. And the angel said, Cornelius. And uh, when he observed him, he's afraid. I'm sure you would be too. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, look at this, your praying and your arms or your giving 
have come up as a memorial before God. A memorial is a reminder. When you have a memorial naturally, it's to remind you of something. And what it's saying here is that prayer, his prayer, his persistent, consistent prayer and seeking God, his consistent mercy and generosity to the poor, that it has been heard by God. It's come up as a memorial to God. How amazing is that? And, uh, and he says, uh, no, if we go down into verse 30, Cornelius said, well, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour, I prayed in the house and the man stood before me in bright clothing saying, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Now, you read further in that story, and of course, you find there is a major visitation. The Holy Ghost falls on the gathering of people there, and now a revival has been initiated that then spread through all the Gentile nations of the world. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is this. There was something attracted God to this man. Notice these qualities. Number one, he was a man of prayer. He prayed. There was a deep reverence or honor or respect for God, and he consistently prayed. Number two, he was a generous giver. He gave because he had the heart of God. He had a heart of mercy. You know, when you have a merciful heart, you access the mercy of God in your own life. And even if you have many failures, God's mercy comes to you rather than justice and judgment. And the third thing was he fasted. And so he had a lifestyle of prayer, fasting, and giving. Now, I want you to see what Jesus taught in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, the whole context of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. He has been ministering about the kingdom of God being at hand, the power of God, the healing, the deliverance, the mighty miracles, the realm of heaven invading earth has come. And now Jesus, through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, begins to teach, firstly in his Sermon on the Mount, on the kind of heart attitudes that attract a response from God. Now, you're responsible for your heart. You can develop qualities in your heart, and the qualities you develop in your heart will determine the outcomes and limitations of your life, the Bible says. So Jesus begins by expounding on the heart attitudes that bring a response of God to you. You know, blessed, uh, you know, those who hunger and thirst, they shall be filled. Notice, there's a hunger and a thirsting heart, and God responds by coming to fill them. So now Jesus begins to turn to different uh, actions or activities, and particularly our lifestyle. First our heart, then our lifestyle. And so he begins in Matthew chapter 6, and he's talking there. Notice he starts off, take heed you don't do your giving before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father in heaven. Verse 3, when you do some charitable deed, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Then he begins to talk about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand. Pray standing on the synagogues and on the corners of the streets to be seen by men. They have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who's in a secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you 
openly. And then later on in verse 16, he applies the same thing to fasting. So notice Jesus is talking about the lifestyle that brings the blessings and power and presence of God from heaven to manifest in the earth. So many Christians are very, very deeply frustrated because they don't see the power of God. They don't see God moving tangibly. They have very little supernatural uh, experiences of him. And it's because we lack understanding of the way to position ourselves for God to move in our life. Now, Jesus spoke of three things here. I'm just going to pick up on one of them. Jesus spoke on giving and prayer and fasting. And notice, each one is a key to releasing something from heaven into the earth. Notice in each of those three passages, he says, don't do a show of it. In other words, don't be doing it with the wrong motivation so you can impress people with what you do and how you do it. He said, rather, these are things which are done secretly. They're done privately. They're done out of the sight of people. There's no agenda that someone might think I'm very spiritual because of what I'm doing. He said, no, rather do it in secretly. And in each case, he says, if you give in secret, your father will reward you openly. You pray in secret, your father will reward you openly. You fast in secret, your father will reward you openly. Notice this word reward. The word used for reward is a word meaning like to uh, receive pay for something you've done, to receive a return because you've engaged in giving your services and your labor. So notice in each case it's saying that what we do in secret with God, alone with God, God in return responds to it and there's an outward manifestation that everyone can see. We are blessed or we experience a breakthrough or we experience uh, provision. We experience some kind of supernatural intervention in our life that would not have come any other way. And it's very clear it's God at work. God does it openly. We pray secretly. God responds with things that, that are very open. I have seen over many years as a pastor, Christians look at other Christians and they say, well, how come they're so blessed or how come this seems to be happening for them and not for me how come they prayed and God did this and he hasn't done it for me and in their heart there's kind of accusing God of injustice in some way but you remember God looks on the heart and God sees what's done in secret so your secret prayer life will have an open response from God your secret fasting life accesses the power of God and there will be a demonstration in some way of God's power in your life. Your secret giving will also open heaven and produce a response from God. So all through this chap these chapters here of Jesus' sermon and teaching, we find that preparing our heart and adapting our lifestyle, we position for God to respond generously and abundantly. Notice what it says in Hebrews 11:6. That if we come to God and we're coming in prayer, we must believe first he's real, he exists. And second, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I encourage you to understand how important a powerful prayer life is. A praying man will influence his marriage and his household. A praying woman will influence her marriage and her household. Prayer 
makes room for God to do things. And we're going to look at the key purposes of this in just a moment. So you notice that in, in, in this passage here, as Jesus is talking, he makes things very, very clear. Number one, that our prayer and our giving and our fasting should be private. In other words, there's a secret aspect to it that's unseen. Two, there's purity. There's no hidden mixture of motives of getting something from people or having people think we're very spiritual. This is sheer determination. I want to pursue God. I want to get to know him. I want to draw near to him. I want to enter into relationship with him. You notice that there's always purpose in it as well. The expectation of reward, the expectation God will do something. So Jesus taught this, God will reward openly. In other words, when you come into prayer, come privately, come with a pure heart. I'm desiring to engage God, but also come with purpose. I'm looking for outcomes of my prayer life. I'm looking for tangible, specific outcomes that God has heard what I said and has entered the earth and brought transformation. We've seen over the course of our lives breakthroughs in finances, breakthroughs in properties, breakthroughs in people being saved, breakthroughs in family members being healed or delivered or even saved. We've, seen, we've got breakthroughs in many, many areas, and I can track them all back to the time that's spent in prayer and in fasting and frequently cupping giving with our praying. It adds power to it. And the fourth thing then that Jesus has instructed, not here, but in Luke 18, is we have to persevere. We have to persevere. Luke 18, 1, he said, taught a parable that men always to pray and not faint. In other words, don't quit just because it got a bit hard. Don't, this time's prayer life can be a bit hard. Don't quit if you don't see the result. Persevere. Persevere. He said, seek him diligently. There will be outcomes. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I want to look then, just then, at the priority that prayer should have in our lives, the, the uh, importance that prayer has. And let's have a look at a scripture here in uh, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. I want you to see the priority that God the Father places on this. In uh, Mark chapter 11, we see there in verse... Um, Mark chapter 11. Well, I must have got the wrong verse there. Let's have a look further down, further down, 17, here it is. Mark, Mark chapter 11, verse 17. And Jesus taught them, and he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer of all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And notice Jesus is referring back into the Old Testament to a prophetic word, and he's saying the house of God. Now, you and I know the house of God is not a building. We are the house of God. Now, here we see God's priority, his number one priority. What is it? That you be known as a man, a woman of prayer. My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer. In other words, God's first priority to you or for you as being his house, the place where his presence dwells, the gateway to heaven, the, the, the access point for heaven to enter the earth, for the, the, the supernatural power of God to flow into your business, flow into every area of your life, the first priority is that we be a house of prayer. So notice that's God's priority. But Jesus then brings a judgment on the church of his day. He said, you've turned it into something else. You made it something else. You, you've changed the priorities. 
So whether it be us individually or as a family or as a church body, prayer is the number one priority. It's God's priority. Of all the things we should be known for, we should be known we're a place of prayer, where heaven engages earth, where the presence and power of God is tangible and people experience miracles and healings and breakthroughs. We've had people come into our home and feel the peace. They notice and comment on it. We have people come into the church and they start to weep because they feel the presence of God. There is no way you can manufacture that. There is a tangible presence of God comes only when there is a prayer and the, the church is strong in its prayer. Listen, the needs of the community are so great. The church is meant to be more than just another charitable group. It must bring answers no one else can bring. It must bring the power of God to the tormented person, the power of God to the brokenhearted, the power of God to the abused. We need heaven to come into earth. So God's number one priority is that the church, that we as individuals and corporately be a, a house of prayer. And so let's not make it into something else by having a different priorities to what God has got. Okay, the second thing we see is that uh, Jesus made it a daily practice. So we see that prayer is a priority or the priority of prayer. Two, we see that Jesus made a practice of prayer. I want you to read with me in Mark 1 and verse 35. Mark 1 and verse 35. Now there's many references to Jesus' prayer life. I encourage you to have a look at them. And uh, you'll find Jesus said this, I do nothing except what I see my father doing. So in other words, he had no agenda except to discover and fulfill what the Father gave him to do. So we read there in Mark 1, verse 35, uh, Jesus is in the middle of a revival. He's in a very, very busy time. It tells us in verse 32, in the evening and the sun is set, they brought to him everyone who's sick and those who were demonized. The whole city gathered, and of course he healed them and ministered to them. So he's having a great revival. And then it says, now in the morning, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight. In other words, he got up when it was dark. He woke up early. He didn't wait for the light, didn't wait for the sun, woke up early. Why? Because it was his priority. Prayer was his priority. And you notice there he rose up a long while before daylight. He went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed, and he received instructions that they were to move on to the next town. So notice you find very early in the morning while it's yet dark. There is a particular value on setting aside a time first thing in the morning. Uh, the, the, the time that's referred to there is the, uh, the last watch, and uh, that would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's the time period uh, where, the, that, uh, where he would get up and he would rise. It's still dark, and he enters into a time. There's a silence in the atmosphere. It seems like there's an openness in the heavens to be able to connect with God. And he made that his habit. He made that his daily practice that he would rise and go there early. Interesting, there's a scripture in Job chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. It says, What is man that you magnify him and set your heart upon him and visit him every morning or every, that's again the same thing, that dawn while it's still dark in the earliest part of the morning. What if God through his word was telling you that in the dark, in the early hours of every day, 
He wanted to meet with you and have an appointment with you. Would that change the way you saw your prayer life? Would you want to get up for an appointment? I found so many people don't think in terms of having a connection and engagement with God. Even coming to church is like that. We'll come to a service. Then we get into a routine of it, a habit of it. Then we become familiar and we forget we're coming to engage God. We're coming to have a connection with God to bring him something and then to hear from him. And regardless of who's speaking or whatever's happening, the, the sole purpose of gathering for us is to come and bring to God an offering from our heart and life and to receive and to hear from him as part of a body of people. So what if that was an appointment? Would that change whether you got there on time? Many people just drift in like Brown's cows, you know, and, and I, I think you're not thinking about having an engagement with God, you're coming to a church service. I never think that way. I've driven hours. I've flown over from overseas and got home in time for a church meeting. I've driven this last weekend, we drove four hours to be there for the meeting from another town. To me, it's an appointment with God. The time in the morning, an appointment with God. You must make it uh, not only a priority, but you make it a practice. You build a habit around getting up at a regular time to engage with and to, to connect with God. And uh, it's, it has a, 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 a tremendous uh, out release in your lives of God's presence and power. And you notice now, in, in Luke, let's read in Luke 5 and verse 16. Luke 5 and 16. And we see there in Luke 5, uh, Jesus had an extended time of prayer. Had an extended time of prayer in Luke 5. And uh, we read there, uh, he himself often, eh, often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And it happened as a certain day as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law sitting by, came out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, there's no gap in those verses in the original. It connects Jesus' prayer, time in the presence of his Father, with there being a powerful presence around his life to minister to the needs that no one could minister to. And so we see from this verse and many other verses like that, that prayer is a, not only a priority, it's not only something we practice daily and regularly, it's also the place of power, a place where the power of God is released. We're gonna look at that in a little more detail in just a moment. So how's your prayer life going? How are you getting on and building your prayer life? I hope you're seeing that prayer is so important and uh, it gives us that chance to engage and bring heaven to earth. Now, I want to get to the point of the message now, and I want to share with you three things which constitute the main purposes of prayer. Now, every one of these purposes could be developed in some extent, but I want to just give them to you so you see what they are, that each one of these things, and in another message, I'm going to share why these are so important, and, uh, and you'll see that how, it all, how it all links together. So anyway, here is what is the purpose of prayer? Number one, number one, the primary purpose of prayer, the number one purpose of prayer is intimacy with God as your father. Intimacy with God as your father. Did you know there's about two places in the Bible where it says God is looking for something? How about that? God is looking for something. What is God looking for? You know, if you knew, if you read your Bible and, and studied it and you found out actually God is looking for two things, then you would want to position yourself so you could be the answer to those two things. 
Because very clearly God is looking for things. Here's the first one in John 4 and verse 24. Remember the uh, woman at the well and Jesus came and met with her and spoke with her. And he made it clear the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is looking for worshipers. The word worship means to kiss towards. It has an expression of being intimate with someone. And so what, what, what Jesus is saying is that the heart of God or the desire of God, number one of all things, above all things, and the primary purpose in our prayer is intimacy with him. That we come to know him, we come to connect with him, we come to relate to him, and we come to hear him. What, what, is, what do we mean intimacy? Many people have never really experienced intimacy because they have such walls and blocks in the heart. Intimacy literally means, it's a, it's a, the, the original word means literally experiential knowledge of someone. It's the word used to describe the relationship sexually between a husband and the wife. A deep intimacy, a deep personal uncovering of one to the other and coming into a deep experience, a happy and a joyful experience of togetherness and union. So God uses that word to describe the, the, the realm of connection with him. He wants to be intimate with you. What does it mean to be intimate? Intimacy means that the walls and barriers that I've held around my heart to keep me protected from other people hurting me, I let down and I let God in to get to know me, what I really am like. And he in turn lets his distance down, his walls down, he opens up to get to know me, to reveal himself to me. Now, God is unsearchable in the riches of who he is. So your journey of intimacy with God is a lifelong journey. It's something you don't just start and stop at the first prayer to receive Jesus. This is a, an ongoing journey of discovering the riches and the excellence of knowing him. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 about the excellence of knowing Christ. And so God wants us to know him, to know his heart, to know his passions, to know what he's concerned about, to know his character, to have revelation of him. But he will not reveal himself to someone who's casual or someone who's dishonoring or someone who doesn't take this or place a priority on this or someone who has multiple other lovers in their heart. What husband would feel attracted to a woman who had multiple lovers? It's like the whole idea of covenant and intimacy and faithfulness and connection is just broken by those actions. So God wants your heart. He loves you deeply and he wants to show how great his love is for you. He wants you to seek him. This is what David said. David was the the greatest warrior in Israel's history, a mighty man of war, a valiant man who fought hand-to-hand -hand combat and slew so many people. He was a valiant, valiant warrior. And yet when you catch his heart in Psalm 27 and verse 4, he says this. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing is all I want. This is my desire. This is what I will seek after. Where there's desire, there'll be pursuit. If there's no pursuit of God, that tells you there's no desire. The heart has got cold. 
So he said, this is what he said. One thing I desire, Lord, that I will seek after. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. He's talking about having encounters with God. Oh, how we need encounters with God. How we need a fresh touch of God in our life. And to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire to fellowship with him. Wow, what a powerful verse that is. So, so God is wanting us to be intimate. And uh, he's not going to be exposing himself to those who don't diligently seek him. So number one purpose of prayer, intimacy. Here's a second purpose in prayer. A second person, a purpose of prayer is personal transformation, personal change. In other words, prayer is the primary way by which our life is changed. Because prayer enables us to have access to the presence of God. And increasing revelation of Him changes us, often without us even knowing. You remember the story of Moses who had encounters with God. And when he came down from the mountain, he didn't even realize the glow of God's glory and presence was still resident on his life. And everyone could see his face shining. So if that's the Old Testament, how much more for us as we engage the presence of God, he's going to bring about transformation. I want you to have a look with me in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, verse 18, of verse 17 and 18. Now the, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, great freedom. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even or just by the Spirit of the Lord. And notice that the key factor in our change is the Holy Spirit working in us. And what brings about that movement to transform us is that we have experiences and encounters in prayer with the Lord. Every time you encounter Him, something is imparted into your life that brings about change. Your desires change. Hunger for God increases. You're, 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 there's many things just disappear out of your life. They, they begin to flow away as you become aware of and conscious of and aware of the presence of God. The church desperately needs fresh encounters with God. Not just another service, not just more meetings. We, we need to experience the Holy Spirit at work in our life, uncovering and revealing our Father and causing us to come into encounters with Him. God wants to transform us. That's part of his work in our life. It's part of his purpose in your life is to transform your heart. So when you got born again, you got a new heart. Instead of your heart being cold and dead towards God, it comes alive with desire for him. But there are many areas of our heart need to be transformed. And there's many areas of our character need to be shaped. And those things take place as we have time in the presence of the Lord and his word speaks to us, he speaks to us, we start to have encounters with him. God wants to reveal, for, just for example, God wants to reveal to you he is compassionate. When you experience his compassion, his mercy, his deep, tender love, something in your heart melts you, and it softens your heart and then tenderness starts to flow out to other people. That's why prayer is so important in shifting and changing our marriages and changing our families because 
as we pray and put our hearts towards the Lord, we make room for him to come and bring change and bring softening and bring transformation. So a second major purpose is transformation. Now, God gives the five ministry gifts, Ephesians 4.11, the five ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, teacher, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building of the body of Christ. And here's what it's for, is that we might grow up and become the perfect man, or we might grow up into Christ. Now, God doesn't want you to remain a baby. He doesn't want to remain a baby Christian. It doesn't matter how many years you've been in church, you can still be a baby Christian. In 1 John chapter 2, it talks about different levels, different stages of maturity. Baby Christians who need to know they're forgiven, God loves you, he's with you, don't worry, he's going to be okay. That's baby stuff. He says, but what about the young men? He said, young men, you are strong. Word of God is in you. You've overcome the devil. How about that? That's young men. And then he says, fathers, fathers, you have known him. In other words, fathers have revelation of God's father heart. And having had that revelation and having the maturity of overcoming as a young, young man in Christ, they now have a heart to father the next generation. The desperate need is for one, intimacy with God and revelation of him as a loving father. And two, that people mature and can carry the anointing and the power and the presence of God into the community and be fathers to a generation that don't know a father. What a powerful thing. We need transformation. You know, if you won't let God work in your life, if you have no fresh experiences with God, you become stagnant. When you become stagnant, you're not growing anymore. Stagnant waters always are full of problem things. See, God doesn't want us to stagnate in our experience, our revelation of him. When is your last encounter with him? When is the last experience you had where God spoke into your heart? If that's a long time ago, then you've stagnated. If you've stagnated, there's no fresh life flowing. You've become religious. You've become just conformed to a system. Instead of being alive in the spirit, full of the Holy Ghost, and being able to share. You know, so often people come to, uh, to small groups. And uh, the small groups that I grew up in, well, everyone came with something to share. What's God been speaking to you? And if you, you, there was something really uh, wrong if you didn't come with something to share. But today, so often, we're looking to a leader to do it all for us. Why don't you come and you've come and you've been in the presence of God and he's spoken to you out of his word. You've got something to share, something to give. Anyway, here's the third, uh, the third purpose of prayer. Number one, purpose of prayer, intimacy with God as Father. Number two is transformation, growth in our character and our heart. And number three, here it is, the important one, it's to release the supernatural power of God into the earth. Release the supernatural power of God into the earth. This is a major one. In uh, 2 Chronicles, in chapter 6 and verse 19, it tells us of something else God is seeking. It says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth, looking for anyone whose heart is perfect towards him that he might show himself strong on their behalf. So God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, nothing covered. He's wanting to change us so we grow and mature, and he wants to work through us to touch the lives of our community with power. God wants his power to flow through you. The place of prayer is where you access the power of God. So God is uh, looking 
for, to express his power into the earth. There are needs that people can't be met unless the people of God step into the place of prayer and carry his presence and power. That's God's plan for us. It's God's intention for us. It's what God intended for Adam. It says, uh, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him? Son of man, you visited him. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You made him for dominion. So we're made for dominion. Jesus came to restore our dominion. To us to have that, we need to have experiences with God. We need to reach out for his power. So here's an interesting thing about the power of God. Many people ask, well, you know, the world's such a mess, and how come if God's a loving God, how come he doesn't do anything about that? I want to answer that one for you. Here's a simple reason. I'll, I'll use an analogy, and then I'll show you what, how, how it applies. It'll be self-evident. If you were a person who owned a company, and uh, you're the, the company owner, it all belongs to you, it's a very big company, it has a lot of distribution, a lot of products, and you put someone in charge of it, and now that means you have delegated to him the responsibility to make the company run, make the company productive, to take care of the company, watch over it, make sure it's not ripped off, that it becomes actually a productive company producing a return. You give him responsibility, and with that responsibility, you give him authority. And so he can make the decisions, hire and fire, and give directions, and so on. Now, that's how it's set up. And the army's set up like that, and organizations are set up like that. There is what's called a chain of command, an order of responsibility levels, and an order of authority and decision-making levels. Now, if the person who owned the company decides he's going to come in and bypass the manager and go and start to interfere in the departments and make decisions and do things, even if they're good things, he is undermining the responsibility of the person he put in charge. He's undermining the authority that he gave him. He's actually violating the principle of chain of command. And it's exactly the same for God. God has chosen to put man in the earth to have dominion over the earth. There's many scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation God has made man for dominion in the earth. That means every person born into the earth has a territory or something they're responsible for, and you're responsible for its successes, you're responsible for its failures. And uh, God is not going to intervene unless you ask him to. If he intervenes, he's bypassing your free will, he's bypassing the responsibility he's giving, he's now undermining what he set up in place He's undermining his own chain of command. God will never do that. So God deliberately limits his activity in the earth to men arising and coming to him and bringing what they're entrusted with to his hands, entering into relationship with him and through prayer, engaging his help. So that company where there's an owner and a manager, the manager can approach the owner and ask for help. And the owner, of course, will come and help. But if the owner interferes, he undermines the, the role and the position he's given. So it's like that with God. God has entrusted to each of us certain areas of responsibility, responsibility for your life, for your body, for your health, for your emotions, for your decisions, for your finances, for the property he's given you, whatever you're entrusted with. You have to become a steward of that. You need to be responsible. God will only come in and engage in those areas if you engage with him. And so the mandate given, for example, to Adam, 
God put Adam in a garden and he said, here's the garden, here's the territory over which I give you dominion. Now I require, number one, that you cultivate it. You are responsible to cultivate it to be productive and two, you're responsible to protect it because there are very real enemies. Adam's failure, he failed to govern and protect. And as a result, he lost his access. The garden got into disarray. He lost his authority and there was chaos took place. God's answer to it was not to step in and intervene. God's answer was to do the same he did at the beginning, was to send his son into the earth and redeem the earth. So God has a way of operating, and that way is called prayer, prayers of faith. You want God to be engaged in a situation? Prayer is God's way of releasing his power. So think about it and think about your uh, own prayer life. Prayer is number one, for intimacy with God. Number two, for transformation, for God's grace to transform you. Number three, for the power of God to be released into your area of responsibility or ministry or life or whatever it is. Only by prayer will God enter those places. Prayer, we saw prayer accesses heaven, prayer releases power, fasting releases power, giving releases power. There's many ways power is released, but the number one is prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. Are you a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, a young person of prayer? You want to change your world? Let God change you. Become a man or woman of prayer. So a few simple things, uh, just to, as I finish, just a few practical, simple things. Number one, set up a secret place. It needs to be some place where you can be private, no phones, no access, no TVs, no distractions, nothing but you and God. Set up a place where you can go and be alone with him. And then make an appointment. Set a time. Set a time every day when you can come into a, an engagement, a connection with God. Don't think of it as a burden or a duty. Rather think of it, I have an appointment to meet with my God. I have an appointment with God himself. I have an appointment and I'm going to engage with him and he with me. I'll come out of that place different. My day will be different. When you come into your uh, time of prayer, come as a child. Just come simply. Come with an open, expecting and trusting heart. There's some practical things as well. If you're going to connect and engage with God, you must focus your attention. The biggest problem in prayer is people's attention is scattered all over the place. They get distracted. Look here, look there. They don't know how to focus there. We need to focus. To focus means eliminate the distractions. Fix your mind on something. Fix your mind on a scripture. Fix your mind on a picture formed from scripture of what God is like or how he revealed himself to someone else. So, and then we're to come with something. Never come with just your needs. The Bible tells us in Psalm uh, 95, is make a joyful noise to the Lord. You come before his presence with singing. So come with something. And the Bible and uh, right through many cultures of the world, you never come before an important person without a gift. So God said, when you come to me, don't come empty-handed. So we always come in, Psalm 98, we come in with thanksgiving and make them bigger as we thank them. We come in, we begin to pray in the spirit. You could have some strong music with you to help you. The music helps your spirit be stirred and begin to give yourself to praying. Pray strongly. Pray in the spirit. Pray in tongues. Let the language of the spirit magnify God. Begin to build an atmosphere around your life. The Bible says, come into his presence with thanksgiving. Come into his gates with praise. And then it says, let us worship and bow down. So as we, as we begin to uh, build an atmosphere of worship and gratitude, 
We often become very conscious of God's presence. We become aware of him. We got our eyes off ourselves. We gave ourselves to prayer long enough for something to shift. And we begin to experience the presence of God. That's the time to just worship. Different kind of music, to become quieter, to become just worshipful, to start to engage him, and then to start to listen to him. He wants to talk with you. I found journaling at a time like that can be very helpful. Writing out prayers and listening to God speak to me. Sharing my thoughts and hearts, reading the word of God. It's an engagement with God. And you come out of that place different. You come out of that place full. You come out of that place with life. You become out of that place empowered. Your praying in the spirit has built your spirit. Your gratitude and thanksgiving has opened heaven for you. And out of that place of prayer, when you're in his presence, then you start to speak over your life the word of God. Start to declare over your life the word of God. Thy kingdom come. I will be done. I pray the will of God into my business. I pray the will of God. Begin to start to pray and call things into being around your life, around your marriage, around your family. Don't, don't just pray needs. God knows the needs. Start to pray the answers. Lord, according to your word, my children shall all be taught of the Lord and great children be their peace. I declare this over each of my children today. Start to pray prayers that bring heaven to earth, that show by your words you believe God is a God who rewards those who diligently seek him. God bless you. I encourage you to commit to a life of prayer. Why don't you just close your eyes right now. Father in heaven, I pray for each person here today that's calm, Lord, and their prayer life has failed or fallen or non-existent. Father, I ask today you would impart the spirit of prayer. I just break the passivity. I break the heaviness. I break the discouragement. I break the lies that God does not hear me or care about me. I reject those lies. Now, I release the spirit of faith. I pray right now, Father, that your spirit would come upon people. Listen, wherever you are right now, why don't you lift your hands to the Lord and close your eyes and make your own altar to the Lord. It says of Elijah, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The altar was broken down. Is your altar broken down? Is your prayer life broken down? Why don't you make a decision to repair the altar of the Lord, to build a place of prayer personally? And then what about in your family? What about building a prayer place in the family? What about looking at how you could bring prayer into your home? Why don't you begin to think how you can pray and bring the power of God into the place you work, wherever you are. Start to begin to explore with God how to do that. He's got a strategy for you. God bless you.